Let's continue to worship the Lord together now as we come trembling before His Holy Word. Let me invite you to open with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to John's Gospel, chapter 8. We do something very, very unusual this morning, and that is that we, we do not pick up where we left off. We end it almost to the end of chapter 7, one verse away from the end of chapter 7. And this morning we start at verse 12 of chapter 8. This is one of only two such instances that we would ever, I think, uh, engage in like this, where we would pass over a section of the text. The other is what's been called the long ending of Mark's gospel, the verses after Mark 16, 8. Now, we will pass over that too when we study Mark's gospel someday, and for the same reason that we're moving past John 8, verses 1 to 11. The reason is simply we have come to understand through the discovery of more and earlier New Testament manuscripts that these portions were later additions to the text. They were not part of what the gospel writer had originally written. Those are the only two sections that that's the case for. We know of them. Uh, there are a few other places where this happens, but only small pieces of verses or individual verses. That's why we saw, if you remember, all the way back to John chapter 5, that's why we saw in our ESV Bibles that there is no John 5, 4. You can look back there and see. It'll go from verse 3 to verse 5. Now, for the sake of time this morning, what I chose to do is to deal with that matter in more detail in the church newsletter that went out late last week. So I'll direct you there. I hope that will be helpful to you in understanding how that has come to be and how we know uh, with more clarity what exactly John has given us in his gospel. Uh, and we will be saying more about that in the newsletter this, this coming week as well. But I would have us begin this morning not by considering that, but instead by coming to verse 8 and by considering this new chapter as a whole, John chapter 8. We need to recognize as we start chapter 8 that not only are we starting a chapter of massive significance, but in, in, in several ways we are entering something of a new section here. There are themes, there are elements that tie chapters 8 and 9 together. And it will be important to try to keep those ties in mind as we move through the individual pieces of these chapters. So in just a moment, we'll read together verses 12 to 20, uh, because that's the passage that we'll cover this morning. But we're going to do more than just cover those verses. Before we do that, we're going to take time to notice some things that unite the entire section, some of the ties that we find within chapters 8 and 9. And it's going to be in light of those unifying concepts that we can then examine verses 12 to 20 inside of it. Let's begin by reading John chapter 8, verses 12 to 20. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. John continues in this way. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. 
But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's think together first for just a few minutes about this new section that we have just entered. There are a couple of themes to understand that really do a lot of unifying in what we're about to see over the next number of weeks. And that those ties, I think, could be described in something of a two-tiered way. There is one tie that we need to notice, and we could call it the matter of paternity. Paternity. The question of, to whose family do you belong? Who is your father? That tie doesn't so much tie chapter 8 and chapter 9 together. What it does is it ties the whole of chapter 8 together. And we need to be able to recognize that as we come into our text this morning. From verse 16 in our passage this morning on, Jesus is going to make reference to his father. He's made that reference a number of times before now, hasn't he? But he does it in a way this morning that kicks off all the rest of this chapter. What it does is it leads to the topic of fathers in general, the topic of paternity that really comes to dominate this chapter. So, for example, in verse 19, they'll ask him where his father is, which makes clear that they are not following him. We'll see that a little bit later. In verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father, and he must clarify. And then from verses 38 to 59... The word father will show up 20 times from verse 38 to 59. That's huge. This is a massive uh, joining concept in the whole of this chapter. And so what that tells us is that as we see Jesus' father brought up this morning, we need to notice it as something that is going to be developed further throughout this chapter. We need to see it with the rest of the chapter in mind. Now, there's another unifying theme, uh, even deeper than that, and that is, we could say, the theme or the matter of blindness. Blindness. Here's what we're going to find. Jesus Christ stands at the crux of an ultimate division among mankind. It's the division as to whether one can or cannot see. Jesus is that which divides between sight and blindness. Or you can think of it in terms of what we saw in John 3.19. We read there that the judgment is that light has come into the world. We know it's speaking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1 already told us that. Light has come into the world, and here's the judgment. People love the darkness rather than the light. Those who hate uh, those who love evil hate the light and do not come to the light, lest their works should be exposed. So when the light does come to the world, 
The inevitable result of that will be that the world will display within itself an organization, inevitably, into two groups. Those who run from it in hatred and those who come to it in faith. And it will be helpful, I think, for us for the next few weeks if we begin to think of blindness, maybe not in terms that we usually think of it, if we usually think of blindness in terms of something like the loss of a natural human ability, so I was born, I could see something happened to me, and I, I entered a state of blindness. If we think of it like that, we need to tweak the way we think of the word here for the next few weeks. And instead, we need to think of blindness in terms of living in darkness. It's like Jesus will describe in, what do you know, John Chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, he'll say there that those who walk in darkness, what they do is they stumble over everything because it's dark. You can't see in the dark. You're blind. Now, chapter 9's place in that theme of blindness is really easy to see. The whole chapter is going to be about a blind man that Jesus is going to give sight to. But the point this morning for us to understand is that when that blind man comes into the story, when John brings his example up of what will happen with him, he's not bringing that in out of nowhere. It follows, and it follows all the way from the statement that we'll begin with this morning in chapter 8, verse 12. But it's not just in chapter 9, and it's not just in verse 12 of our text. You can hear this blindness problem in the way that Christ talks to the Pharisees, too, in this chapter. In verse 13, they're going to challenge the legitimacy of his self-testimony. And as we'll see, he's going to answer them, but he's going to answer them in a way that would most certainly not be persuasive to them or satisfactory. It's not really his purpose. His point is simply, look, my testimony is legitimate, and by the way, it's not alone. The Father testifies as well. The law's good standard is upheld. But you will never know it or be able to accept it for the simple reason that there are realities that you are blind to. Verse 19, you know neither me nor my father. You do not know where I come from or where I am going. There are realities that you are blind to that were prerequisites that must be there. My friends, what I hope we see this morning is that the fact that we're about to look at in verse 12, that Jesus is the light of the world, that fact is monumental. And its, it's importance really can't be overstated because what that will mean is that without him, if he is the light of the world, without him, we lose all basis to rightly judge about anything. It doesn't mean that such a person will never bump into truth here and there. He won't be able to help it because the Lord has built his world upon truth. It doesn't mean that. It does mean that pieces will never be able to be put together. Right estimation, or as it's, it'll be put here, right judgment, is not possible without light. So these are themes that we need to be aware of from the beginning here as we start to walk through these chapters. But now let's look more closely at our text this morning, verses 12 to 20, and we'll do that under two headings. We'll divide it in 
to 2, and it is very lopsided, the way that we'll divide this. Uh, We're going to look at verse 12 all by itself, and then we're going to look at verses 13 to 20 together. And the reason for that is that we hear a declaration that our Lord will make about himself in verse 12, and then from verse 13 on, it is all about whether and why Jesus is justified in his self-testifying and ought to be believed. I mean, you can glance through the rest of those verses and see that that is the substance of what this resultant interaction is, whether and why he should be believed in this testimony. Before we get there, though, let's look at verse 12 a little bit longer. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Notice that that's a twofold statement. There's a statement about who he is, or we could say what he is. I am the light of the world. And then there's a statement about how we may come to enjoy the benefit of who he is. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, the first of those statements, the one about what he is, requires that we have the kinds of thoughts in mind that I was describing about blindness, when we think of the blindness that Jesus describes in natural man. Because think of what Jesus' claim means here about you and me. He who has come into the world is the light of the world. That means that light, as he's speaking about it here, is not a natural human possession. It comes to us, and it comes to us only in Christ. Furthermore, it means that 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 light isn't a separable entity that we can sort of possess by itself. Someone put it this way, that light is not an objective revelation that people may receive and hug to themselves. Jesus is the light. To have the light is to have Jesus. There is no light apart from a right relationship to him. So you see, this blindness isn't about the loss of a function that is natural to natural man. It's a description, rather. It's a description of the reality (laughs) that we walk in darkness until we come to the light that is Jesus Christ. It's just a statement of bad news about the human condition unless Christ chooses in his kindness and mercy to bring his light to us. And if that's true, then of course the second part of his statement really is just inevitable, isn't it? If my way is to be lit by light, if I am to not walk in darkness, I have to follow after the light. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now I take that description, the light of life, to mean that he will have the light that gives life. That equation between the life that is in Christ and our light goes all the way back to John 1, verse 4, doesn't it? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We keep going back to chapter 1 over and over, don't we? It's almost as if John has planned out his gospel and given us a summary at the beginning, which is what he did. Now, the power of the truth of this statement in verse 12 As Jesus says, I am the light of the world. 
It's a powerful statement, isn't it? It might be matched. I don't know. It might be, the power of it might be matched simply by how incredibly beneficial the very image itself is to us. It just makes so many things clearer for us as we try to think and walk through our life. One significant area that I would point out to you by way of example is the realm of sinful temptations. I think that this description of the Lord Jesus is incredibly enlightening to us. Each and every time we would face sinful temptations. Because here's what it tells us. As I walk in obedience to Christ, I am following the light. I can see where I'm going. And so there's not a danger walking after the light of slamming my shin into something that I couldn't see. Or piercing my own heart by walking headlong into a spear tip that I just didn't notice. There's not danger of such things on the path, being forged by our Lord, being lit by our Lord. But the question is this, what am I then doing when I decide it's a good idea to veer off to the right or to the left? Thinking in these terms, what am I doing? I'm walking right off the path that my Lord has forged for me. The path that he's leading me on. And in fact, as I do it, I'm choosing to walk into darkness. That, le that lets me pose the question in a particular way. Why would I ever do such a thing? Why would I do that? And this is where we start to have the deception of sinful temptation revealed to us. Why would I do that? Well, I would do that if I become convinced by its temptation that there's something out there in the darkness that is good, that wasn't on the path. I'm walking in pursuit of the good, and maybe there's something there. This is a great deception of temptation, the way that it promises us. Just come over here for a bit. That's generally the right way, but there's a, this good thing over here, I think. Just come for a bit, enjoy. Give in to this desire, and then if you want to, you can just walk right back up into that path. Now, the deception of that seems to me is twofold. One is that it lies about what the darkness is concealing. Because it suggests that the darkness is hiding something that is good for us, something beneficial. Psalm 84.11 makes quite a claim to us when it says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Where will I find any blessing that the Lord God, the sovereign of my life and of my next breath, would have for me? I find it as I trust in him. But sinful temptation says, no, there might be some good things out here. Just come explore for a bit. The problem with that is that the nature of the darkness is such that all it hides are objects designed for your everlasting destruction. That's what's hiding out there. And would you agree it would be hard to return to the path if you have perished in the darkness? What the darkness is hiding are those things that desire for you to perish. 
And sometimes when we veer into the darkness, sometimes death is the result, isn't it? Sometimes death is not the result. Sometimes lifelong regret is the result. How many of us in here, I, I won't have you raise your hand, but we could take a straw poll. I think it'd be quite telling. How many of us have those memories, have those trials now, through the decision to pursue something that we thought was good, that we now have lifelong regrets that we must wrestle with, lifelong damage. And I tell you, this is not, should not be controversial. Would you agree with me? Never has a, a, a man, a woman, never have, has anyone done that and suffered those consequences who didn't begin that path because they thought they could see something good out there. None of us have ever done that because we thought, I'd really like some lifelong regret. I'll go ahead and wander off the path and grab. That's never why anyone has done that. Every one of us for whom we suffer in those ways, it began with the thought that there's something good out there. How long will we be fooled by this sinful temptation? It deceives us in that way. Another way it deceives us is that it hides a fact that so many have discovered too late. It hides the fact that the man in Proverbs 1 discovered too late, and the one in Proverbs 5 discovered too late, and the one in Proverbs 7 discovered too late, and on and on. And that is that once off the path that we are following after Christ in, once off that path, often finding the way back is not so easy as we thought it would be. And it's ironic in a very sad sort of way that this is a place where our own experiences of God's past mercy to us can actually become a means of helping us along this deception. I'm talking about the level of caution that we have in our minds in the present. The level of caution we have as regards our own decisions or as regards the decisions of other people that we love. Surely this is the case for all of us, that we can remember times in the past when we chose to wander from the path that God has laid out for us in Christ, and we were graciously allowed back. Often, far more often than we, we would dare expect, allowed back in a way that is completely restorative and without enduring consequences. Do you have such times? You look back and you think, oh my Lord God, what that could have been for me if you had not protected me from those consequences. Do you have those moments? Here's the danger. Without remembering the nature of that darkness as we were just describing it, we can come to think in a very perverted way about the darkness. That sounds something like this. Oh, well, I remember doing that back then, and things turned out just fine for me. I might think about that as I consider doing it again. I might think about that as I consider how to raise my children or how to counsel the people that I care about. My own past experiences of God's gracious mercy lead me to think less of the danger out in the darkness. Can we just be reminded again this morning how foolish such a thought is? I made that terrible error back then, and here I am. Well, maybe so. But why is that? For one reason only. 
Only one. It's because your father graciously chose to do something he did not promise to do for you. And that is to protect you from the consequences and the dangers and the darkness. We are not promised that protection. And for every one of us who safely did come back to the light from that, uh, that sinful decision, how many others have wandered in the same way and never returned? And so, no, we never presume upon God's past mercies. What we do is we strive to see the darkness rightly, which is to say we strive to so guard our minds that we fear and hate the darkness. And we strive to walk in the light. And here's what our Lord says to us this morning. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we follow him. We walk where he tells us to walk. We walk where he leads us. We see his example in the scriptures and we seek to walk after that example. We hear, as the Holy Spirit has so powerfully worked to bring back to mind everything that Jesus taught to those who are writing Scripture, we listen to him through the Scriptures, and we follow him in that way. We walk how he walked, as 1 John 2, 6 tells us. Whoever says he abides in him, in Jesus, ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. This is what we do as we walk after the light of the world. And as we do so, we do so with incredible joy because we know that we are being blessed tremendously as we trust him, as we take his word for what is good, what is desirable, what will lead to life and to his blessing. Now that is what Jesus said in verse 12. Do you notice how in verse 13, the Pharisees don't even reply to it? It's like they don't even seem to have heard what he actually said because they say nothing at all about this incredible statement. It's as if they heard the first two words that he said. He testifies to them and he says, I am, and they fall into a frenzy trying to grab the red flag to throw out onto the field. You are bearing witness about yourself. That testimony is not true. You don't get to do that. It's quite possible that this whole interaction is actually the product of Nicodemus' question at the end of chapter 7. Do you remember that? He posed that very annoying question to them. Doesn't our law require that we give someone a hearing before we judge them? And they were plainly irritated, but he was right. It's very possible that as a result of that question, they send these Pharisees out to give him a hearing. And this evaluation visit has them in full procedure mode, full technicality mode. I'm not sure if they're ever not in full technicality mode, but they're certainly in it here. And they jump at his statement, but you need to notice, they don't jump at it in terms of the content of what he said. They jump at it on the grounds that since he's reporting to them about himself, his testimony is not valid. The word here, true, your testimony is not true, often means true in the sense of valid, worthy to be recognized. That seems to be the point here. And it's helpful to, to understand that because that affects how we hear his response in verse 14. Look at verse 14. He responds to them by saying, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Again, it is valid. 
because I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Just think about this for a moment. It's helpful, I think, to see how he puts it down in verse 23. He says there to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. He is not trying to insult them as he says these things. He is explaining a fundamental difference between him and them. The only ones qualified as witnesses to my claims, given the nature of the claims I'm making, I'm telling you that I have come from heaven, that I am the light come into the world. I'm telling you that I am the true son of the Father whom he has sent. The only ones qualified as witnesses to those claims are those with a divine perspective, a heavenly perspective. And it's as if he says, like it or not, there is none of you who could possibly be qualified to speak validly about the claims I am making. You'd have to know something about where I came from and where I'm going. Another way to say that is you'd have to know something about the Father. I come from the Father and I'm returning to the Father. You'd have to know Him. But of course, we've already seen in this gospel, you can't know Him without coming to the Son, can you? But nobody else would be qualified to give such a confirming witness. They are utterly limited to what we could call a perspective from below. Verse 15, you judge, he says, according to the flesh. And for just a moment, let's jump over what he says about judging in verses 15 and 16. We'll come back to that. But let's finish this thought. He says in verse 16, my judgment is true or valid because it's not unaccompanied. He says, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And then John didn't record it, but Jesus then says, and one plus one is two. Assume that's what he said next. He had told us this back in John 5, 32. He had said there, there is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. And you remember there he proceeded to lay out a multifaceted way that the Father has testified about who Jesus is. That Jesus is his beloved Son. He is sent from the Father. What we're hearing our Lord say here to these Pharisees is, like it or not, recognize it yourselves or not, there are two witnesses, and this is valid testimony, We are each qualified witnesses to my claims. And it's valid whether or not you are willing to accept it or to recognize the witnesses. There are things you cannot recognize because you are blind to them. You do not know who my father is. And this is the great deficiency. And it's as if it's right on cue. The question they chime in then with in verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? That's perfect timing for that question. And it's the latest misunderstanding now in John's gospel, isn't it? We have seen misunderstanding after misunderstanding of Jesus' words. They don't get it here that he's talking to them about his heavenly father. Their misplaced attention is on his earthly father. Where is he? And in some ways, scholars are split on what might have been the Pharisees' intention here in asking this question. Is this a genuine question on their part? 
I mean, are they looking to interrogate the second witness that he's claiming? That certainly could be the case. And it could be that both of these are true. Uh, could it be that this is a backhanded insult to Jesus, asking this question? Oh, where is your father? We know that the unusual circumstances of his conception had produced rumors and attacks relating to whether or not Jesus was born out of wedlock. And in fact, they're going to go there in just a few verses, down in verse 41. Uh, They said to him, we, emphatically placed pronoun that compares it to someone else, we were not born of fornication. We were not born of inappropriate sexual relations. I wonder who they're comparing themselves to there. So where is your father could be a not-so-veiled insinuation that he doesn't even know who his true father is. Notice, though, either way, we take it, the father that they're focusing on is Jesus' earthly father. And if there's any bait in that question that they ask, Jesus doesn't take it. He moves right to the point. Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. This is not the first time, and it won't be the last time, when Jesus will point to the absolute inseparability between the Father and the Son. In terms of these two witnesses, the point he makes is a point that is true today, and that is that nobody knows and recognizes one of them who does not know and recognize both of them. You either know neither one, or you know them both. There is no third option. And you might remember his own disciples are going to make the same mistake in John chapter 14, and he'll correct them for it. Maybe turn there for just a moment. John 14, starting in verse 8, Philip asks him a question. And it's very telling how he replies. John 14, 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He says here in our passage, if you knew me, you would know the Father also. And I hope it's becoming clear to us now, because this isn't the first time we've seen this, is it? It must be clear to us that it's, it's this way by necessity, by virtue of who Christ Jesus is in the incarnation. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. We keep going back to John 1, don't we? John 1, 18, you remember? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So let's think for a moment about what we've seen so far. We have one more place to go here. We have looked at Jesus' astounding claim in verse 12, that he is the light of the world. We have heard the Pharisees raise the question of legitimate testimony, and we've heard our Lord's reply, that his, in fact, is the only legitimate testimony on earth, because only he is from above and not from below, as he's about to say in verse 23. And he repeats that his father, too, testifies from heaven on his behalf. 
and that that testimony is valid whether or not they know his father. Now, there's one thing left for us to consider from this passage and to bring into the wider discussion. It's the things he says about judgment in verses 15 and 16. Look again with me at verse 15. He says, You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now, what can we see here? He says, while they judge according to the flesh, he judges no one. So there you have it. Jesus judges no one. And of course, by that, he means that he never declares anyone to be in the wrong in any of the things they do or any of the things they think. That that must be what he means. Now, don't question it and don't ask whether those words could possibly be taken in any other way. Don't wonder whether or not he ever blatantly contradicts that in this passage or in any other place. Just let the first way that this one clause hits your ears Let that determine how you think about any and all senses of judgment. And you'll be well received in the world that we live in today. And even among much that passes for Christianity today. However, that is not the only option. There's an option too. If you you want to be someone who lives out the golden rule, if you want to treat Jesus and his words in the way that you hope others treat you in your words, then you'll have to do some things. You'll have to do things like consider the actual context that he speaks in here, consider what else he might have said about the broad issue. You'll have to do those things. And you'll find some places that must be factored into your thinking about judgment. You'll find places like the next verse, for example. John 8, 16. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Huh. So I have to tuck that in to the way I'm considering judgment and Jesus. You'll find places like John 9, 39, where he says, For judgment I came into the world. Oh, okay. You'll find John 5, 27. God has given the Son of Man, that's Jesus, authority to execute judgment. Oh, all right. You'll find Revelation 6, 10, describing the time when the Lord, that's Jesus, will judge and avenge the blood of the martyrs. And you'll factor that in. You'll find Hebrews 10.30, which says that the Lord will judge his people. And then says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You'll find Acts 17.31, where God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by this man, by Jesus. You'll find 1 Corinthians 5.13, which says that God judges those outside the church. You'll find those kinds of places. And even before looking at any of them in their context closely, which we need to do, but even before doing that, you'll know that it is not in every possible sense that Jesus could be said to judge no one here. There's no way that could be the case. So in what sense is he speaking here that aligns with what he has said elsewhere and especially that aligns with his comments right here to this group of Pharisees? In what sense could Jesus say the words, I judge no one? And I would give you two senses. One that's very easy to do and aligns with what we've read in John is to think in terms of the purpose of his first coming. 
The reason he had come into the world, born of a virgin, to live. What do we know about the purpose of Christ's first coming? Well, John's already told us. John 3.17 told us that God, quote, did not send his son into the world, the ESV says, to condemn the world. But that word is the exact same word as we have here. It's the word for judge. He did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So there's a sense in which the word judge can mean condemn. And he makes very clear that that is not the purpose for which Christ has come into the world in his first coming. That's certainly a true statement connecting Jesus to a non-judging. The purpose of his first coming was not as judge, but instead was, we could say it in a number of ways, he came as the prophet God sent into the world. Most fundamentally, he came as propitiatory sacrifice to lay down his life, shed his blood, to atone for the sins of his people. Now, having said that, I actually don't even think that's the main thrust of Jesus' point here in verse 15 when he says, I judge no one. I think his point is rather this second thing. And that is that what he's doing, very simply, is he's differentiating between the way in which he assesses or evaluates people and the way that the Pharisees are displaying of of evaluating things, evaluating people. He says right here, you judge according to the flesh. You assess people based on what you see, based on an earthly perspective. By contrast, I judge no one according to the flesh. Notice that all of this talk about judging is right after his statements about bearing witness and about the Pharisees assessing that testimony, judging that testimony in that sense of assessing, evaluating. He's not talking about condemning. That is a meaning of this word, but it's not the only meaning. And it's not what they're talking about here. It, he's talking about assessing or evaluating. So that the point here is simply that he does not judge, he refuses to judge like they do. He refuses to play the game that they must play by virtue of their limited perspective. And that fits what he immediately says next as well. As he says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. In other words, he's not at all precluding any proper occasion of judging, is he? He's claiming a capacity for valid judgment based on his superior knowledge. Second half of verse 14, because I know, dot, dot, dot. Think about, here's a great example. I think he's saying exactly what's being said back in John 2.25. He's cleansed the temple. He's worked many miracles. John 2.25, many believed in him there. You remember what was said? It said, yet, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's what he's talking about here. Jesus' statement about himself in verse 12, I'm the light of the world, was a judgment. It was an evaluation about all mankind. And here's the evaluation. You are all living in darkness without me. He judges rightly. The Father judges rightly. Why? Because God can see the heart. My goodness, what what capacity do we have for being deceived, for misjudging others in terms of our assessments? 
We can look at a person and be extremely impressed and intimidated based on outward appearances, outward manifestations, can't we? And God can look at that same individual and see, know the truth about them. He can look at that same person and know the truth of great weakness, great fear, great selfishness. God sees those things. Because like he told the prophet Samuel, God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God sees us as we really are. And what did he do as a result? He sent his son. <coughs> Doesn't help to turn when the mic is connected to my chest, does it? <laughs> he saw us as we really are. And he sent his son light into a world of darkness, a world of enmity. And his son, that light, sees us for who and what we really are. And he comes as God's gift of love. He lays down his life to rescue those that he came to save. This is what we see when the light comes to us. And my friends, you know it. God cannot change, can he? Even now, God is light. Even now, he sees you as you truly are. And for each of us, the first thought of something like that is a thought of horror, isn't it? Until we come to the sun and we see in his face a look of willing sympathy and mercy. So these are simple truths that we can take from verses 12 to 20 this morning. What do we see about our God? We see that God sees with perfect clarity. He evaluates perfectly. And the result of that perfect evaluation is a perfect diagnosis. Here's the diagnosis. You are in darkness until and unless the light of Jesus Christ draws you near. Do you sense that that offer continues to go out this morning? The scriptures declare to us, today is the day of salvation. The offer of mercy that we have so graciously received in the Son is continually put before us every day so long as we draw breath. But it is a breath that we are not promised. And so we're reminded this morning of a great truth about our Lord that protects us from sinful instincts. If you have children in here, you know firsthand from very recent memory about these sinful instincts. This is what children do. They get hurt, and that thing which would be healing from them, they run from it. They fight. I've had to do a lot of pinning down legs, arms, to wipe clean, to put a bandage on. The instinct is to run from the very thing which would be healing. But we know that we possess the very same instinct, don't we? And when our sinful flesh wants to run from the light, wants to hide from God, or from those blessed hands and feet of God that he has put around us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we know, don't we? Those are the very instincts that would keep us from healing. Because our Lord tells us this morning, whoever follows 
me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess together this morning the truth of what we have read and the credit, therefore, that is owed for the fact that we are gathered here at all. We are here. We desire to be here. We love your people. We love your son. All because you have brought us to the light. We look forward to eternity in your presence, but we will forever thank you, worship you for the mercy that you have given us in Christ. God, I do pray if there are any among us, as doubtless there is, who do not yet bend their knee consciously in repentance of sin before your merciful Son. Oh, Father, I pray that you would show them the danger of the darkness of their life and that you would show them the sure safety and and utter security and blessing that there is in the light. We know, as you have told us, that there is a cost to choosing to leave the darkness and into the light. But, oh, Father, help us to see those costs rightly, to weigh them against the cost of remaining hidden, fleeing from the light. Father, even today we pray that you would bring sinners into the light today. We thank you for your faithfulness and your kindness and your generosity that is represented as you do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I thank the Lord for his continued goodness and blessing to 